3: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to All Delights Show one hundred and forty nine. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Great show lined up today to give you what's coming up. We have Fact Article by J.J. Campanella with his Science News. We have an interview with the author of today's story, Adam Troy Castro. Then we jump straight into the main fiction which is Adam Troy Castro's, and this is a great title. Just a couple of highly experimental weapons took behind the toilet paper. Next up is a fact article by Rod Barnett, his film Talk. Then we have part two of the serial The Barons by F. Paul Wilson, narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoy it and, by God, stick around. Just before we jump into today's show, two things. I just want to give a little shout out to my friend Amy H. Sturgis. She's going through a bit of a crap time at the moment. And Amy, you know, honestly, thoughts are with you all the time, you and your mum. Like I said, if you want to have a chat, please, by all means, do. My thoughts, and I know all Starship so far's thoughts will be with you. Take good care. The next, just a little bit of information before we get into the show. Matt Sanborn Smith, for some reason, has started to read all the Bond books and has asked if anyone wants to read along with him, you know, go over to his Twitter account or, and, you know, or his website and join in the fun. So I'll put a link on if anyone wants to go over there and read Bond with Matt. The name's Matt Sanborn Smith. Double-oh-one-and-a-half. So first up, kicking off with his science news for this month is G.J. Campanella. Jim Squire, what have you got?
4: Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this August 2010 science news update. I'm your host for this bloody hot summer evening, Jim Campanella. I don't know about you guys out there, wherever you live, but I'm getting pretty sick of this chronic above 90 degree weather in the northeast U.S. Jersey has been a steam bath for months, and I'm a bit worried that September will only mean moderation into the 80s. If I wanted to live in the tropics, I would move to Florida. When you hear this, I should hopefully be at a conference slash vacation for a couple of weeks in Oregon, where it is supposed to be much cooler at the moment. I look forward to evenings where the temperature actually drops below 70 degrees Fahrenheit. But at the moment, my thermometer says it is 86 degrees Fahrenheit outside, and it is 8 p.m. Ew. Anyway, let's get on to the first story before I melt. The human body is quite amazing, and the first story just verifies that belief. I've always wondered how women can slog around all day in 2, 3, or 4-inch heels with minimum foot problems. I suspect that it is male obliviousness that made me think that the problems are minimal, by the way. It is just a thing that most men have not experienced or understand. A new study in this month's issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology by Dr. Marco Norisi from Manchester Metropolitan University examines not only what happens to women while they wear the high heels on a daily basis, but what happens when they take them off. Doctors have known for a long time that if you hold a limb, an arm or a leg, in a shortened position over an extended period of time, the muscles shorten up. High-heeled shoes push heels up, which made Dr. Nerisi wonder whether wearing heels on a regular basis would shorten calf muscles. According to Nerisi, there was some anecdotal evidence that something changed because secretaries in the 1950s complained about discomfort when they took their heels off and walked flat-footed. Narisi stated, I thought it was an experiment which was inadvertently being done by women. What we could do was test high heel wears to see if we could find some changes in the calf muscle. Narisi obtained volunteers ranging in age from 20 to 50 years old who had regularly worn 5-centimeter heels for two years or more. He eventually discovered a final group of 11 women who felt uncomfortable walking around without their heels on. Then he recruited a second group of women who did not wear high heels to look at the internal workings of both groups' calf muscles. Measuring the size of the women's calf muscles using MRI, the researchers found that the calf muscles of the high heel wearers were the same size as those of the women who preferred flat shoes. In other words, they hadn't shrunk. Narisi stated, Quote, we were expecting slightly smaller muscle volumes in the high heel wearers because we thought if the muscle is in a shortened position, then you are loading it less and the muscle volume would be smaller. Unquote. Next, they used ultrasound to measure the muscle fiber length in the women's calf muscles. And this time they did see a difference. The high heel wearers muscle fibers were 13% shorter than the women who wore flat shoes. That confirmed the hypothesis because when you place the muscle in a shorter position, the fiber becomes shorter. However, by shortening the fibers, the muscles would have to contract more to shorten by the same length. And if this was the case, the high heel fan's calf muscles would no longer function optimally and thus would produce less force than the flat shoe wearer's calf muscles. Essentially, the shortened muscle fibers made it more difficult for high heel addicts to walk efficiently. Scanning with MRI, they found the Achilles tendon was the same length in both groups of women. The tendon had not lengthened to compensate for the shorter calf muscles. However, the high heel fan's tendons were much thicker and stiffer than the flat shoe wearers. Narisi and his team realized that by thickening and stiffening, the Achilles tendon compensates for the shortened muscle fibers in the calf muscle, allowing the heel wearers' calf muscles to function optimally as they walked but causing discomfort when walking on flat feet because the tendon can't stretch sufficiently. So should women give up wearing high heels? Nerisi says yes, give them up. But being realistic, he suggests that fashionistas addicted to their Jimmy Choo's may want to try calf stretching exercises to avoid soreness when they kick off their heels at the end of the day. The next story actually makes me jealous of woolly mammoths because they were on Earth when there was an active Ice Age. Biologists are always curious how animals that live in extreme cold, like that of an Ice Age, can survive that nasty weather. Now, the woolly mammoth vanished just after the last Ice Age, but it may be the best understood prehistoric species there is because of its massive size and its demise in ice made for near-perfect fossilization. In fact, the fossil record has illuminated a lot of what we know of this animal regarding anatomical adaptations to the cold. Thick fur, oily skin, blubber, small ears, tail. By the way, those of you who think that the modern elephant evolved from the woolly mammoth would be wrong. The elephant is actually older. The woolly mammoth descended directly from Asian elephants that originated in tropical Africa five to seven million years ago. Ah, but as interesting as that trivia may seem, the more interesting thing is the evolutionary question that it brings up about the mammoth evolution to cold. In short, what kind of evolutionary adaptations allowed a massive tropical elephant that was and is excellent at eliminating excess heat to move into and survive the frigid Arctic? Until recently, none of the fossilized evidence could be connected to how this animal once functioned, because physiological and biochemical characteristics do not fossilize. In the most recent volume of Nature Genetics, Dr. Kevin Campbell and his research group from the University of Manitoba examined that very question. In typical mammal hemoglobin, the oxygen-binding protein in the blood releases oxygen with very slight increases in temperature thus allowing beneficial site-specific oxygen delivery to warm, working muscles. However, the hemoglobin of modern Arctic species is insensitive to low temperature. In those animals, the oxygen delivery to cold extremities and appendages is maintained, despite having a warmer core, and that saves energy and minimizes heat loss in those animals. Campbell hypothesized that the woolly mammoth should have similar blood chemistry, but the problem was, how do scientists analyze blood from an animal that went extinct 10,000 years ago? Well, the answer is, ta-da, molecular biology, cloning, and genetic engineering. If you have no blood, you try to isolate the hemoglobin gene, and then express the protein in bacteria, and then analyze the enzymology of the newly resurrected protein. And that's pretty much what they did. They extracted DNA from three permafrost-preserved Siberian mammoths that lived 43,000 years ago. From this DNA, they sequenced hemoglobin genes and converted the sequences into mRNA. They then inserted the mRNA into E. coli bacterial extracts and performed a process called in vitro cell-free expression, which manufactured the mammoth's hemoglobin. Next... The team compared the mammoth protein structure to Asian and African elephants. They found structural differences in the mammoth hemoglobin resulting from three amino acid changes. Finally, they performed physiological and biochemical experiments on the mammoth hemoglobin to determine how the structural differences affected function. They found that the mammoth hemoglobin functioned over an extremely wide temperature range compared to that of their modern tropical forebears, This could be due to more chloride binding sites on the molecule. That changes how much heat is released during binding of oxygen. Arctic reindeers possess similar binding sites, and actually elephant hemoglobin has that binding cluster as well built into it, though it's not functional. Campbell's team believes that these three amino acid substitutions in the hemoglobin sequence set mammoths apart from their elephant cousins, allowing them to oxygenate tissues even at very low temperatures and preventing costly heat loss. Yeah, we're not talking Jurassic Park here, but hey, this is something pretty cool to find out about a species that's been dead for tens of thousands of years. Humans love the taste of beverages. Some people are very serious about certain types of beverages. I know some people who turn their noses up at Dunkin' Donuts Coffee, insisting it is not up to the quality or taste of Starbucks. And other friends who insist that a $7 bottle of wine is the equivalent of drinking urinal water. And yet still other friends who insist that Coke, Pepsi, and Royal Crown Cola all taste alike. Which, by the way, I don't believe. Then there are people I know who insist there's a difference between the various brands of bottled water. You drink store brand water? Are you insane? I only drink Poland Springs. It tastes so much better. Now, until I read the next story, I pretty much discounted that last bit as being, well, less than believable. Although water is essential for us, astonishingly, little is known about how we sense it or regulate its uptake. However, we can learn how we taste water from studying insects, as there is a general agreement among scientists that these little creatures do have a taste for water, even if there is a question of whether humans do or not. A research team from the University of California, Berkeley, led by Dr. Kirsten Scott, has now published a new study in Nature, providing insights into the molecular basis of water taste in fruit flies. Yes, fruit flies, but you have to start somewhere. Fruit flies have a unique set of taste neurons that participate in the detection of various tastes. Among them are also neurons known to respond to water, but by an unknown mechanism. In order to identify the neuron's water receptor, Scott compared gene expression in the mouth parts of the fly between control flies and mutant flies lacking all taste neurons. One of the genes whose expression was significantly decreased in the mutant flies was something called pickpocket 28, PPK28, which is a gene encoding an epithelial sodium channel. Next, Scott monitored neuronal activities in response to different taste solutions by using a genetically encoded fluorescent calcium sensor expressed in the water-sensing neurons of living flies. She found higher neuronal activities when she stimulated the flies' mouth parts with pure water and lower activity when she applied solutions containing salt, sugar, acid, or bitter substances. The higher the concentration of the added substances, the lower the resulting neuronal activity suggesting that the water receptor responds to changes in the relative water content, not to the water directly. The mutant flies failed to respond to water, in contrast to the control flies, which did. Moreover, the mutant flies also changed their behavior as they drank significantly less water. Finally, to determine whether PPK28 is directly involved in water sensing, the team inserted the PPK28 gene into human embryonic kidney cells which do not express any taste receptors. They again recorded calcium signals to monitor whether the kidney cells could detect water. Well, they did. Scott's group successfully conferred this type of responsiveness to human embryonic kidney cells, which again lacked any taste response normally. I guess next time someone insists that Deer Park water tastes better, I won't be quite so quick to dismiss them. Humans may actually be more sensitive to water than I suspected next story is appropriate since this year is the 50th anniversary of the birth control pill. For as much good as many people think the pill has done in this world, it has probably caused almost as much suffering. For example, it has been known for years by physicians and scientists, though not highly publicized in the media, that the pill has a strong connection with breast cancer induction. Even more oddly, a study released in early 2010 suggests that Mortality in general was increased in the youngest age group of pill users. Women under 30 who took the pill had almost a threefold greater chance of death from any cause than never users. Scientists are still puzzling over that one. But this story has nothing to do with death. It has to do with straight reproduction, or, well, at least to do with sex. Dr. Christine Drea, professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University, has been examining the more subtle effects that contraceptive use can have on mate selection. A dozen female lemurs at the Duke Lemur Center were given monthly injections of the contraceptive Pervera. Drea's chemical analysis found that the treated animals expressed different scents than intact females, significantly altering the signals females send about themselves to social contacts and prospective partners. In other words, they smell funny. The findings are part of studies that Drea's group has done using chromatography to tease apart the chemical components of the scents produced by lemurs. A female lemur's scent normally conveys not only her fertility status, but also information about her identity, her relatedness to others, and her genetic homozygosity. That is, an indicator that prevents inbreeding between related lemurs. If all that information is scrambled by hormonal contraception, it may in part explain changed pattern of aggression that other studies have noted when captive primates are treated with contraceptives. In this study, there were 12 females that served as both intact and quote contraceptive animals by being sampled in each condition. Under contraception, the females were found to express some sense that intact females don't, and to express sense in different proportions. The contraceptive females also tended to lose their scent individuality. Drea says, quote, There's something very different about these gals. If animals are figuring out who their kin are by scent to avoid inbreeding, they no longer smell like their brother's. In behavioral tests, the 13 males in the study showed clear preference for the scents of intact females, spending less time investigating odor samples from contraceptive females. The bigger question is whether these findings are relevant at all for our own species. Humans are known to send and receive olfactory cues about hormonal status and possible compatibility. Drea says, quote, one has to wonder if human mate choice could be affected in the same ways as it has been in these primates. Well, it is something to think about. The last story of the night is not really a story. It's a bit of a departure from my usual straight news stuff. What I want to relate to you guys has to do more with my continued awe at nature and the organisms that are out there in the world. I was at the library the other day with my four-year-old daughter, Zarebeth, By the way, an oak leaf cluster with brass figleggy for anyone who knows what SF source her name comes from. And as usual, I told her to pick out whatever books caught her eye and we would read them together. Well, among the books she brought back to me was one that had a monkey on the cover called Never Smile at a Monkey by Steve Jenkins. The book was in the picture book section of the children's library. When we later read the book together, I was surprised at its sophistication for being from the section of the library for the youngest readers. The book is essentially a warning for children and adults about dangerous animals that do not necessarily appear dangerous at all and how they should be treated and avoided. I already kind of knew the story of the title of the book, You Never Smile at a Rhesus Monkey. Well, or most monkeys for that matter, because they will interpret the show of teeth as an aggressive gesture and usually respond violently. Even a small monkey can hurt you seriously because they have long, sharp fangs. It is ironically amusing that humans evolved to show that smile as a way of exhibiting humor. But here are a bunch of other examples of dangerous animals from the book, and these completely surprise me. I had either never heard of them before or thought they were pretty innocuous myself. First, never pet a duck-billed platypus. Why? It's the only poisonous mammal, and it has venomous spurs on its back legs. It's not fatal to most humans, but the jab can literally be intensely painful for weeks at a time. Second, never collect a live cone shell from a tide pool. Why? Why? It has poisonous barbs that can be launched like little harpoons. And the barbs are so poisonous that you can die within minutes of being stabbed. Fun stuff for a four-year-old, huh? The deadliest is the geographic cone shell from the South Pacific and the Indian Ocean. Their toxins are so potent that when they spear small prey, the prey die almost instantly. Number three, never jostle a box jellyfish. Why? The box jellyfish, also known as the sea wasp, is said to have the deadliest venom of any animal on the face of the earth. More than 5,000 human deaths have been caused by contact with this seriously nasty creature. Most jellyfish just kind of drift around in the ocean, but the box jellyfish actively swims and quite quickly in pursuit of prey. It's the only jellyfish that has eyes, and it has 24 of them. The biggest species of these has a body the size of a basketball and tentacles up to 10 feet long. Number four, never stare at a cobra. Why? They can spit venom accurately more than eight feet, and they always aim for the eyes. The venom causes intense pain and even blindness if you're not treated immediately. Number five, never caress an electric caterpillar. Well... They're not actually electric, but they are certainly quite nasty. They have hairy bristles that are actually small spines, and the spines are filled with poison. They are delicate and can break off into your skin if you handle the little caterpillar. And without immediate medical attention, weakness, severe sickness, and even death can follow. I had no idea that you could actually die from just handling a caterpillar. Let me finish with this warning. Never swim with a squid. Why? Well, a humble squid is bigger than a full-grown human. And this is what I didn't know. Its tentacles are lined with thousands of sharp teeth. Yes, teeth on the tentacles. The Humboldt attacks by whipping those tentacles and teeth around you. Then it tears you to pieces using a combination of those toothed tentacles and its very sharp parrot-like beak. It makes you think of Cthulhu or something. Usually, these animals stay in deep water of the eastern Pacific, but they have been known to attack divers and fishermen. I'm not quite sure my daughter appreciated any of this, except for the pretty pictures of the animals in the book, but I thought it was one of the coolest library finds in quite a while that we have found. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, keep cool, stay away from those squids, and stretch those calf muscles after wearing those red leather Manolo Blahnik slingbacks all day. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.:
3: Jim, thank you so much. Next up we have Adam Troy Castro, a little interview I did with Adam Troy Castro, just to find out about Adam and about this kind of strange name for a story.) <laughs> So I'm joined by Adam Troy Castro. Adam, nice of you to join me. Nice of you to ask me to join you. Well, we're going to play in a minute your story. Just a couple of highly experimental weapons tucked away behind the toilet paper. Now, that in itself is a fantastic title. Can you tell me a little bit, not really giving away the ending, but where do these this story come from and you know, what, what's happening in this story?
5: Well, this is one of, uh, I think it was about nine stories that I wrote regarding a couple of characters called Vossoff and Nimitz. Uh, Ernst Vasov who's the boss of the pair, and Carl Nimitz, who is uh, his uh, somewhat idiotic toady, and the two of them are space rogues who get involved in various uh, mishaps uh, throughout space and time, and uh, the stories uh, were published uh, over a period of uh, several years, in uh, in uh, a magazine that no longer exists called uh, called uh, um, Science Fiction Age, uh, in the nineteen nineties and uh, early aughts, and uh, and they were it was a very very popular series, but uh, and they all had titles like this.
3: I think the titles are fantastic, you know. And have you ever went back to th- th- those two characters? Well what
5: as I write in the uh, collection, which I ultimately did, uh, Vasov and Nimitz, one of the things strange things that happened to the characters is that against all odds, they actually developed. Um, as they were very uh, close partners at the beginning, but then about four stories in, I introduced uh, Vasov's ex-wife, uh, Deja Shapiro, who uh, immediately in the stories, uh, Nimitz, and uh, she drove a wedge between the pair, and it became much harder to put the two together in stories. So I pretty much say that uh, there aren't going to be any more Vazov and Nimitz stories, probably, but Deja Shapiro has appeared one other time uh, as a supporting character in uh, a serious novel I wrote called uh, The Third Claw of God.
3: How far into the future is this collection of stories set?
5: I would say thousands of years. I don't specify exactly, but it's clearly at at some point where people are zipping around in spaceships and there are uh, thousands of worlds with humanity and all sorts of uh, weird alien races. Uh, The stories are uh, not meant to make any kind of of consistent sense, which uh, makes them a very odd uh, companion to the uh, Andrea Court stories, which are serious, and which these stories are connected to.
3: Adam, would you be kind enough, just to get, you know, anyone out there in Starships over that doesn't know Adam Troy Castro, can you just give a little brief bio of yourself, you know, where did you come from and what, what your, kind of, your writing habits are?
5: Well, uh, I uh, am a science fiction and horror writer. I started as a horror writer around the year, uh, uh, the end of the 80s, and I sold a bunch of horror stories, and then starting around 1993, I started selling uh, science fiction. And uh, I've uh, written some stories that uh, were nominated for Hugo's and Nebulas, uh, among them uh, uh, a story called The Astronaut from Wyoming, which I wrote in collaboration with uh, Jerry Altian and which uh, did win the Seyun Award. And I also wrote uh, Sunday Night Gams at Minion and Earl's, which was another award nominee and a whole bunch of others, and uh, I started uh, writing novels uh, in the late uh, 1990s. I have did a, uh, four Spider-Man novels, and then I wrote a few novels of my own. And uh, I'm still working on the, on uh, on the, the uh, science fiction, but uh, I have dipped recently back into horror a little bit, which is uh, uh, interesting, considering that I've been somewhat inactive in that area for a few years.
3: And... What, what I'm interested to find out, where do you kind of loyalties lie? Is it short fiction? Is it novels? Or is it really, you know, the short fiction's there to kind of take up the slack when there's a novel being finished, or...?
5: I am drawn towards short fiction, which is a problem, because uh, short fiction uh, is, is not really uh, um, a good career decision. So for many, many years, uh, while I was getting the... Uh, the novel tricks down pat i was writing a lot of short fiction but those short fiction uh, grew to the length of novellas and then i made the jump to uh, to novels now i still get short fiction ideas all the time but i uh, do understand that the novels are where it's at professionally and that's what i'm largely working on these days
3: i was going to ask you that adam what what's happening nowadays for yourself uh, excuse me, can you say that again? What, what are you writing? Are you writing anything now?
5: Well, um, right now um, I've just sent in a, uh, a young adult idea, a proposal, which I'm hoping uh, have good things open for. Um, I have a couple of other novel proposals out. Right now I'm in between major projects, but I'm working on uh, a couple of things uh, that I'm hoping uh, I can sell from the, uh, from the usual uh, outline and sample chapters. Um, I have two things coming out next year, which are illustrated alphabet books, which I did in collaboration with a very uh, fun artist named Johnny Atomic, and those are uh, Z is for zombie and V is for vampire, and those are alphabet books about the titular monsters, and uh, they're both horrific and hilarious is the best way to describe their
3: tone. <laughs> it's so fun. Uh- Adam, are you see a, f- a full time writer? This is your kind of the day job, or have you? Are you is this part time, and you, you've got your kind of a normal job, like out there in the in the real world, so to speak?
5: I had a uh, job for uh, uh, twenty years that I did not consider a quote unquote normal job because pretty much everybody I worked with was various levels of abnormal. I don't even. I've been, I've been it's been suggested to me that I write a horror novel about uh about the job I worked at. But I've been that uh I've been full-time writer since 2003. And uh, since then I've done the vast majority of my books.
3: Adam, have you got any novels coming out? Well, I have uh, two
5: novels which are out now. They are called uh, Emissaries from the Dead and The Third Claw of God. And these are both um uh, murder Mysteries uh, featuring a uh, a um, galactic prosecutor by the name of Andrea Court, uh, who I sort of modeled on Asimov's uh, Susan Calvin, although she's a lot more disturbed than uh, Susan Calvin ever was. Um, and one thing that's interesting uh, to uh, people who are about to listen to uh, uh, the, the stories that you've read is that uh, Deja Shapiro, who is uh, Vasov's uh, current, excuse me, Vasov's ex wife, appears in a serious role in The Third Claw of God. Um, she does mention Vasov and Nimitz, uh, who really does not belong in those novels and therefore uh, um, <laughs> therefore will not appear. But she does appear uh, in a serious role in The, in the uh, Third Claw of God, and uh, a lot of people who are uh, fans of Vassov and Nimitz
3: were surprised to see her. Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sofa. My pleasure. Take good care. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. This story is narrated by Morgan Saletta. Who grew up in the San Francisco Bay area before moving over to Paris, France for a year before heading back to San Francisco where he pursued undergraduate studies at the San Francisco State. Since then he's spent about a decade in Paris where he's earned two master's degrees and taught various university classes. And he's recently taken up writing science fiction We've played one of... Morgan's stories, and he's been a narrator on Starship Sofa again as well. He now lives in Melbourne, Australia. I wonder if, Morgan, are you going to OzzyCon? (laughs) Fingers crossed for her. So, Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present...
6: Just a Couple of Highly Experimental Weapons Tucked Away Behind the Toilet Paper by Adam Troy Castro Read by Morgan Saleta Recovering from severe mental trauma in an advanced interstellar civilization, can be more difficult than it sounds, especially when the other patients on your ward include carnivorous lizard things with transparent skulls, shuffling blobs of semi-liquid goo who shoot acids at three-second intervals, and soulful-eyed marsupians who carry their own digestive organs around with them in buckets. The problem is not simply that some of these creatures are alien enough to shatter your already delicate psyche. It's that you cannot regain your grip on reality at all without first figuring out which of them are really there and which are just your playful subconscious having fun with you. You can waste years in such an institution, gradually learning to accept that the giant slug which keeps trying to eat you during group therapy is just a delusional manifestation of your deep-rooted childhood resentment toward your sweet little silver-haired mother, only to find out, after multiple shock treatments, that you are in fact a giant slug yourself and that you never had a sweet little silver-haired mother except as an appetizer. Under the circumstances, it's easy to see why folks who go insane in advanced interstellar civilizations usually remain that way. In the case of that notorious interstellar criminal, Ernst Vossoff, who had spent the better part of the past three years in the Incurable Ward obsessively cutting out paper dolls, giving them names, and using them to reenact the Napoleonic Wars in brutally realistic campaigns that left the floor of his padded cell ankle-deep in confetti, he remained a conscientious objector to reality until the day his principal therapist oozed in through the heating vent and spoke kindly supportive words through the prosthetic Sigmund Freud head it held between its multiple rows of razor-sharp teeth. Anst, my boy, how are we doing today? Am I Abraham Lincoln, drooled Vossoff. I think I'm Abraham Lincoln. I used to be Genghis Khan, but then John Vane got part. Why can gravity be less of a law and more of a gentle suggestion? Kenneth, what is the frequency? Cougu Gajub. Excellent, said the therapist, who naturally came from an alien culture where pointless non sequiturs were considered the soul of wit. He'd spent years training Vasov to make absolutely no sense whatsoever, and he personally thought that the Earthman had made almost enough progress to be released into the community.
7: I've been directed
6: to let you know that you have a visitor. Salvador Dali once dated a moon goddess. There are fourteen eyes in the word kangaroo. is isn't republicanism an adverb. Blanc spotch McGillicuddy. I've got a bunion. The therapist beamed, literally, since his race emitted laser fire when happy. Absolutely, I'll let him in. And so he oozed out of the way as the door irised open to admit a singularly unusual specimen of Terran-strained humanity, aforementioned specimen being a burly hairless, moist-eyed thug whose expression was not incredibly far from the perpetual incomprehension native to the faces of toy poodles. All of Vasa's painstakingly installed nonsense conditioning melted away in a single instant. He shrieked, You! burst his straitjacket and leapt across the cell, his hands already spasmodically twitching in anticipation of their fatal grip on the neck of his traitorous ex-partner Carl Nimitz. But even as the murderous Slav made contact, Nimitz pressed the larger of two buttons on a small device in his right hand, and both men vanished, so perplexing the squid-like therapist that he actually swallowed his prosthetic Sigmund Freud head in a single gulp. The therapist was, by the way, later proven to be one of Vossoff's delusions, but that was okay. His success rate with the other patients was so high that he was still permitted to practice medicine. As for Vossoff, he was not quite in the mood to interpret this as a rescue. He stood on the gleaming control decks of Nimitz's brand-new, top-of-the-line space cruiser, immobilized by an automatic ship security stasis field, threatening bloody revenge at the imbecilic ex-partner, smiling at him from the opposite side of the control room. I will murder you, Vassoff ranted. I will expunge you from existence. I will render this universe a place where you never lived." I will travel back in time and unplug the refrigeration unit on the fetus vending machine that spawned you. I will travel back still further, seek out the mother of the demented genius who invented the technology and persuade her to forgo parenting in favor of a career dancing in alien ballet. I will travel back still further than that. "'and force-feed her great-great-grandparents' mind-altering drugs "'so they think they're different species, "'and thus never fall in love or mate. "'And from there I will travel to the very earliest beginnings of evolution "'on your wretched home-world and stomp down hard "'on the first trilobite I see crawling from the primordial muck.'" "'Gee,' Nimitz said, with his characteristic lack of irony. "'I thought you'd be happier to see me.'" "'You paleolithic puts. You married my hated ex-wife, let her steal the fruits of my genius, and raised not one peep of objection as she transformed me into a mound of fat the size of a mountain range. Nimitz blinked so many times in the next second that his eyelids almost opened a gateway to another space-time continuum. Gosh, I guess I do owe you an apology for that one. I mean, I did marry Deja, and we're very happy together, but I honestly didn't know about that mound of fat part. Although, come to think of it, it, does sound like the kind of thing she would do. How on Vlan did you get changed back to normal? It didn't happen on Vlan, you backstabbing baboon. And never mind how I managed eat. Eats enough that I spent the last three years recovering from the psychic trauma. And then I get my hands on you and that traitorous little trollop, I'll... A multitude of voices behind Vasov interjected in unison.
7: Be rich beyond your wildest dreams of avarice. Vossop whirled, expecting a mob, finding instead a single alien
6: creature of a species he had never personally encountered before, one that could have been described as an old-fashioned coffee table bearing dozens of tiny, grinning, multi-fanged fish heads in upside-down bell jars. It took him a second to see that the table was in fact wholly organic, that the heads were all attached to it, and that the legs were sinuous, prehensile tails lined with moist, wriggling cilia." The upside-down bell jars were evidently some sort of breathing mechanism, providing the beast with its version of a planetary atmosphere, which suited Vossop just fine, as he was instantly grateful not to be sharing his own precious oxygen with such a thing. Still, Ernst Vossop, being who and what he was, it took him only half a heartbeat to cut past the strangeness of the alien's appearance to the heart and soul of what it had said. And then he grinned and twirled the tips of his walrus mustache, and spoke with sudden deceptive calm. Oh, I wouldn't know about that. My wildest dreams of avarice are rather unrealistically grandiose.
7: So we've been told, said the collection of heads. Indeed. All of our exhaustive research into your background confirms you to be an appallingly single-minded specimen of the peculiar human subgroup known as Greedy Bastards. Nevertheless... We feel perfectly justified in asserting that even you cannot possibly underestimate the extent of the riches we offer you.
6: Really? Vasov made a big show of trying to come up with just one random idea off the top of his head. Not even if I want, say, a mercenary army powerful enough to crush all opposition, raise everything in its path, Conquer the galaxy and install me as official emperor and god.
7: The collection of heads waggled its cilia disparagingly. Fah, pocket change. We thought you had more ambition than that. Vassoff tapped his lip with the tip of his index finger.
6: Interesting,
7: he said finally,
6: in the kind of disparaging tone designed to show how little he meant it. And would I have to share these ill-gotten gains "'with my mindless oath of an ex-partner, "'who so ungratefully left me suffocating beneath billions of tons of
7: quivering cellulite,' Nimitz cried out. "'Hey!' "'The answer to your question,' said the collection of heads, "'is no. "'The wealth and power would be all yours. "'All Mr. Nimitz wants out of this deal "'is to get his beloved wife back. "'In short, Deja Shapiro is missing.' and we feel that you are the only man in her life even remotely sentient enough to find her. Once again, Nimitz cried out,
6: Hey! Vasov grinned. So, let me see if I have this straight. If I agree, I get to rule the galaxy like a god. If I refuse, my ex-wife remains missing and is never heard from again. Is that... Minor explanatory details notwithstanding, essentially the difficult choice you are offering me. Essentially, said the collection of heads.
7: Yes, except that it wouldn't be this galaxy, but another one identical to it in every way. Vassoff chewed on
6: that, chewed on it some more, tapped his foot while continuing to think about it further, almost opened his mouth to speak. Then stopped and simply paced back and forth. He was imitating a set of scales with his outstretched palms, raising first one, then the other, but seemingly either unwilling or unable to make them balance out to anything other than perfect equilibrium. When an anguished Nimitz cried out, "Oh, come on, Ernst! That isn't fair!" It was twenty minutes later. Vassoff had washed up, shaved, and dressed in a fresh jumpsuit befitting the criminal mastermind that he was. He and Nimitz now sat side-by-side in the control room, listening to the alien's spiel. The collection of heads turned out to be a renowned physicist from a major university on a planet that translated as the sound of water being absorbed by desert sand. His own name translated as the sound of water being violently expelled by desert sand, which, on its planet, is a silicon-based intelligence that cannot abide the taste. Inevitably, he used to be teased about the name as a crushling, was inevitably saddled with the insulting nickname <laughs> Mud and had to suffer through such traumas as the time in the neighborhood vomitorium when... Get on with it, growled Vassoff. Mud's cilia trembled in broken-hearted annoyance.
7: I am beginning to realize why so many of your people consider you a real jerk. But very well. We, oui, that is to say... Not just the group entity standing before you, but an assortment of other qualified group entities much like us, who functioned as our peers in this project, have recently invented a cure for unhappiness. Vassoff
6: leaned back in his chair and rested his chin on his own interlocked fingers. So have I. It's called obscenely vast quantities of wealth and power.
7: Frankly, we believe so, too, but merely recognizing that, won't persuade other sentients to freely provide us with either. Therefore, we have designed an entirely new technology which we believe will swell our coffers considerably. It's called the Alternatrix, and it's essentially a doorway into alternate universes. Oh, please,
6: Vasov derided with a dismissive wave of his hand. Don't tell me that's your big mysterious scheme. Interdimensional travel has been
7: old hat for years. We are aware of that, Mr. Vasov, just as we are aware that it's never been rendered practical. The time and energy involved in sifting through the literally infinite number of alternative universes has long been the major stumbling block, preventing anybody from finding those that substantially improve on this one. After all, alternate universes are not labeled, or for that matter arranged in any coherent order. One can waste entire eons struggling to identify the unique quality of a universe that differs from ours only in the precise position of an individual thumbtack on a departmental bulletin board in the regional tax offices of an obscure planet, otherwise only known for the rubbery taste of its pasta. And indeed, I did not come up with that particular example just out of thin air since before we came up with our breakthrough, our project founder, the venerable professor, sound of granite hillside eroding into shape of terrestrial carrot, did drop dead of shock when, after cataloging over 200,000 separate universes where the thumbtacks on said bulletin board varied no more than a couple of centimeters in one direction or another, he finally located a plane where the office staff had used Staples instead.' "'Staples?' cried
6: Nimitz. "'The fiends!' Mud froze in mid-expression, staring at the horrified Nimitz, unable to parse the precise relevance of his interruption. After a
7: moment, he shuddered with several dozen heads at once, and continued. "'It's clear that most alternate universes are not even worth a time and effort of exploration. They're like theme parks to irrelevant diversity. The problem—' has long been the difficulty in developing an intelligent filtering mechanism, capable of taking your specifications for the precise kind of alternate universe you wish to find, and then instantaneously scanning the myriad dimensions for the one that fits your description. This, sir, is our alternatrix. vasov brushed his mustache. So... If I asked
6: you, purely as an illustration, mind you, to find me a universe where science fiction editors mate with vending machines, dentists are required by law to daily beat their thumbs with hammers, and a secret conspiracy of professional wrestlers was responsible for the assassination
7: of the 20th century American president, John F. Kennedy. I would ask you whether you meant master unmasked wrestlers. And if I replied, masked. I would ask Olympic, Mexican, or World Federation. Trust me, sir, you cannot name an alternative universe so ridiculous that our alternatrix is not capable of finding it. Which is how we can promise you a galactic empire. We know we can find a universe willing to accept you as ruler. Vossoff thought about that,
6: smiled, and cracked his knuckles. And just how do you intend to use these as
7: a cure for unhappiness? The alternatrix reads its subjects' brainwaves and automatically opens a portal to the parallel universe most likely to strike any individual as paradise. And I suppose you will require people to sign over
6: all their money and property before taking this one-way trip, Mudd snorted.
7: Of course. We're not doing this because we're fuzzy-headed liberals. We have a profit motive here. And how can they know you're not simply
6: transporting them into the center of a sun and pocketing the money? It's
7: what I would do. Because we won't make them sign the papers until they've returned from a one-month free trip to see whether it's really what they want. By then, they're desperate to sign. It's all very above board, really. And a surefire moneymaker, since nobody's ever really been satisfied with the universe they were born in. We foresee a 50,000% profit within the first standard year of operation, but we don't actually have the funds to launch this exciting new enterprise on the interstellar scale it requires, which is frankly why we met with your ex-wife, who, as you know, happens to be one of the three wealthiest individual sentients in the known universe. And who is now missing, Vassov concluded. Correct.
6: Vasov tapped his chin thoughtfully. You need not continue. You have already given me enough information to reconstruct the events that led to the dear woman going a vol. You offered her a taste of her ideal universe as a demonstration prior to investment. Correct. Nimitz here interrupted just long enough to make an irrelevant and no doubt mind-bogglingly stupid remark. Nimitz stirred. Hey! Mud's collected heads shuddered at the memory.
7: Indeed, the inane contents of his contributions still send shockwaves reverberating throughout our culture. We are hoping to spend much of our first year's profits on genomat treatments so we can evolve hands and slap our collective foreheads in astonishment. Nimitz said, Hey! No doubt, whatever he said had something to do with pastrami. Please... Don't reconstruct it. It's already driven my podmates and egglings to mutual defenestration. Vosov nodded sympathetically. And you don't know how many years
6: I actually lived with that. Deja used some pretext to trick you into leaving the room, quickly reprogram the alternatrix, and immediately send herself to some unknown alternate universe of her own choosing, scrambling the database so she could hide on that plane indefinitely without you or your people ever being able to find her, retrieve her, and finalize the agreement that would make the transfer of all her collected wealth legal and binding. All correct. You need me as the only sentient man in her life. Nimitz rose out of his chair. Hey, 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 hey! To figure out which... Out of all the literally infinite number of alternate universes she might have chosen for herself, is the one where she's hiding, so you can yank her out of there. Threaten to bar her from that particular paradise should she not choose to ante up. Get her signatures on your contracts, claim her entire fortune, and commence building your business empire. Two dozen fish heads nodded vigorously enough to set their little bell jars chiming at high pitch. An astounding set of deductions, sir. As a certain famous ancestor of mine once said, Vasov replied, twirling his walrus mustache with self-congratulatory aplomb. Elementary, he bowed. May I respectfully ask that you permit my ex-partner and I some time alone on this matter. I am certain that as the two great loves of Deja's life, we will be able to come up with some helpful epiphanies." Dozens of alien
7: lizard heads regarded Nimitz doubtfully. Do you truly believe he'll be any help? On our way here, when we were cruising hyperspace at fifteen times the speed of light, he actually tried to step outside with a flashlight to see what would happen when he turned on the beam.
6: Interesting. I honestly believed I'd long since talked him out of that experiment. Nevertheless... One of the wealthiest, most desirable, most lusted after women in the known universe has inexplicably given him her heart. So there must be a semblance of coherent electrical activity going on in that absurdly designed head of his. If nothing else, he will be invaluable in helping to isolate the wrong answers. Very well. Mud said doubtfully, as he scuttled away on his many elegantly varnished legs. Few creatures in the universe, with the possible exception of middle-aged Terran accountants in horizontally striped bathing suits, would have looked more absurd leaving a room. Vassoff watched him go with his glad-handing smile firmly in place, and a heretofore unseen resolve just beginning to well in his cruel Stalinist face. Nimitz wiped a tear from the corner of his moist puppy-like eyes, do you really think you can find her ernst i miss her an awful lot i cannot make any promises you humanoid gerbil it has after all been several decades since she and ivor pronounced man and harpy i never truly understood her even then and the special laws of thermodynamics that govern true ex-wives provide any number of revolting ways that she might have become even more incomprehensible in the interim indeed she would have had to, to honestly prefer you over me. Nimitz said. She used to laugh and bet about the way you... Yes, yes, yes. I'm certain it was very cute and made me look woefully inadequate. But that is irrelevant now. What is relevant is that I fully understand why the dear woman seized the opportunity to hide. She clearly recognized our foes for what they are. One of the greatest threats ever to face the known universe. Nimitz goggled. Huh? Vassoff slapped his forehead. She must have been happy with you for some reason. Tell me, how frequently do you two make love? Monday through Friday. You make love five times a week. Nimitz blinked. No, just once. Monday through Friday. Vassoff weighed the image, shuddered meaningfully, then hurriedly moved on. In any event, as I started to say before your personal IQ famine forced that annoying detour... It's perfectly clear to me why Deja went into hiding. She knew that if she didn't try out the alternatrix, then Mud would find some way to force her, in the hopes that she'd emerge from her personal perfect paradise brainwashed and eager to sign over her entire fortune in exchange for passage back. She knew that her fortune would enable these ambulatory Chippon to establish their enterprise on a galactic scale, that few sentient creatures would be able to resist the siren call of paradise, and that entire star-spanning empires would happily hand over all their collective wealth just to buy their populations billions of individual one-way tickets to Never-Neverland. The galaxy would be depopulated in a few short years, leaving it by default the sole property of mud and his fellow knick-knack tables. Nimitz scratched the top of his preternaturally smooth head. Would that be a bad thing, though? Everybody would still get to live in paradise. A surprisingly good point, coming from a cretin who normally only has points at the top of his head. Were I of a certain philosophical bent, I would respond with a pretentious Shatnerian speech about life not having any meaning without first having to fight and suffer and endure great hardships for every fleeting scrap of happiness. Blah, blah, blah. But frankly, Carl, that philosophy always seemed like a bunch of horseshit to me, as I'd frankly much prefer obscenely vast quantities of wealth and power and happiness, all handed to me on a silver platter. No, personally, what keeps me, and I strongly suspect Deja, from eagerly buying a one-way ticket through their device, is the knowledge that the coffee tables haven't preceded us up that particular stairway to heaven. As usual, Nimitz was fourteen steps behind him. Huh? Think for once. They already have a working prototype. They can simply use it themselves instead of exploiting it commercially. Instead, they're staying right here, on this plane of existence, happily plotting a universal conquest that depends entirely upon the rest of the galactic civilization rushing where they themselves refuse to tread. This my planarian friend is as conducive to trust as entering an allegedly gourmet restaurant and sputting the chef in the back, furtively scarfing a meal of greasy fast food from just up the block. I e, if his own food is as incredibly wonderful as advertised, then why is he clogging his arteries with the ordinary slop the proletariat eats? I know, Nimitz shouted, happy to contribute for once, Because he likes to do the the connect-the-dot puzzles on the placemats. Vosov froze in mid-dissertation, as usual, thrown off course by his ex-partner's inimitable way of cutting to the meat of a problem. He blinked several times in rapid succession, and then, for several seconds, emitted an excruciating grinding noise that might have been the sound of a recently derailed train of thought being forcibly returned to its previous set of tracks. I infer from the generally humanoid designs of the furnishings that this ship belongs to you. Deja, her personal yacht, she doesn't let me drive. Smart woman. I also infer that our friend with the unpronounceable name doesn't let you drive either. Oh, sure, said Nimitz. He brought along a platoon of heavily armed commandos from his home world, and they've switched all navigation and control functions to a secondary control room behind the pachinko parlor. They did that just after they won the battle and seized the ship. Did I forget to tell you that? That's all right, Vassoff replied. I'm sure that I would have figured out we were prisoners some time after they resorted to questioning under torture. Tell me, you monument to the gods of ineptitude, where does Deja keep her weapons locker? Not, mind you, the big shiny one no doubt marked Weapon's locker that she filled with ominous-looking but non-functional phonies that hijackers, like our friends, the coffee tables are intended to find, but the hidden cache of genuine, top-of-the-line art there that are honestly meant to be used. And the bathroom behind the toilet paper dispenser. Deja says she puts it there so I'll think twice about leaving the seat up. Vasov shook his head, overcome with fond memories of an argument that he and Deja had once fought over that very controversy. It had raged for most of their honeymoon, and resulted in each of them eventually hiring mercenary soldiers to enforce their own point of view. The open warfare had destroyed ancient civilizations on fifty separate star systems. He shook his head to clear away the happy reminiscences, and said, Come on, we have some coffee tables to polish off. The first law of internal security on a starship is to have a reasonable sense of proportion vis-à-vis the need for superior firepower. For instance, it does you absolutely no good to fire an all-powerful Bettelheim munitions destructo-beam through the palpitating hearts of the slavering Carnivorous mutant advancing down the corridor toward you if said destructo-beam emerges undiminished from said mutant's back and proceeds to punch a tunnel the size of an orange through all twenty layers of your outer hull. Far from it. For even though you currently exceed the size and shape of an orange, explosive decompression will still succeed in improvising a way to fit you through that hole. No. If you must regularly fight pitched battles in the corridors of your starship, it is best to equip yourself with weaponry that can incapacitate your enemy without making an orange out of you. With that in mind, Vasov and Nimitz armed themselves and began their offensive. They encountered their first alien coffee table in the corridor immediately outside the main control room. He was a tough customer, something Vasov recognized because all the heads in the little bell jars had eye patches and dueling scars, and also because all four of the table legs were marked with animated holographic tattoos of alien supermodels doing obscene things to fluffy pink bunnies. When the beast saw Vosov and Nimitz, he cried out and reached for his blasters. Vasov deftly fired his Betelheim munitions trivia gun, which promptly rendered the beast unable to think of anything more pressing than who played the lovable time-otter Brooklyn, in the 2387 Hollow series Half-Black Hole will dilate. That set the alarm on sounding, and in seconds 14 other alien coffee tables scurried around the corner, their blasters waving. Against them, Vosov used his Betelheim munitions psionic muzak bomb, which upon exploding, immediately filled the corridors surrounding the aliens with obscenely bastardized versions of their favorite songs. The mob immediately fell to the deck, writhing and moaning in unimaginable aesthetic agony. Vasov and Nimitz stepped over the pathetic, convulsing forms and moved on. The third and final obstacle greeted them at the portal to the Pachinko Parlor. It was an alien coffee table that, oddly enough, carried no special weaponry at all. Instead, it was clad in an all-concealing black slipcover that to Vasov's expert eyes instantly marked it as its civilization's nearest equivalent to a master ninja. Its war cry resembled the sound a cinderblock makes when thrown from a great height into a porcelain bowl filled with cats. Acting with the speed of thought itself, Vassoff whipped out his Betelheim munitions' poor self-image generator, which instantly caused the alien martial artist to slink off into a neutral corner to dwell at great length on the bad impression he had always made on people. "'I can't believe this!' Nimitz gasped excitedly as he and Vasov reloaded in a nearby utility niche. "'We're actually winning. Since when does that happen?' "'Since I first hooked up with you,' asked Vassoff. "'Absolutely never!' Maybe our luck's changing. You used to say we were straining the law of averages to the breaking point. Maybe it's finally kicked in. Maybe. And maybe the entire universe will put a paper bag over its head and breathe deeply as a cure for entropy. Nevertheless, as soon as the last door between the two space rogues and the backup control room irised open, both Vasov and Nimitz courageously leaped through, their Betelheim munitions, you can't shoot me, you've just had a crisis of consciousness. Conscience generators cocked and ready, only to trip a proximity-activated teleportation grid that ensnared them the second they passed through the door. A brief moment of blissful non-existence later, both men found themselves reintegrated inside a pair of humanoid-sized stasis fields that imprisoned them besides a huge pulsating archway labeled Alternatrix in Neon Dom Casual. Mud capered at the far end of the chamber, tinkering with the controls. He did not bother to turn around, but he did chuckle evilly in a particularly snotty way that strongly reminded Vasov of himself.
7: "'You know,' he remarked conversationally, "'It's funny. There are any number of embarrassing things that can befall an unlucky sentient in this cruel and capricious universe. So many that cataloging them and voting on your favorites has become one of the galaxy's most popular hobbies. We collect the most appalling stories, rate them according to uniqueness and severity,' publish gossipy newsletters on our findings, and hold conventions where we toast all the people who have recently thrown away the last shreds of their tattered dignity. It is widely accepted among us connoisseurs that the second most humiliating thing that could even possibly happen to anybody would be finding oneself outsmarted by Ernst Vassop and Karl Nimitz. You don't know how relieved I am that this hasn't happened to me. What took first place? asked a curious Nimitz. The dozens of heads arrayed atop mud all swiveled as one. Being born you two. In any event, we have followed your careers with great incredulity over the past thirty years or so, and you have been a great inspiration to all of us in the hobby. In fact, we are thinking of renaming the year's biggest loser trophy after you, the Mitzoff. What do you think? I don't know, Nimitz said doubtfully. Kind of sounds like an award you're not allowed to touch. Indeed. And what could be more appropriate, given the subject matter? The desperately struggling, beet-red, completely helpless Vasov
6: stuck out his lower jaw defiantly. Enough of this, Mud. We know your alternatrix is a fraud. Because if it wasn't, you and your ridiculous species would have used it yourselves a long time ago. What are you really after?
7: Frankly? asked Mud. Revenge. Against who? Against everybody. Mud thundered. You see, the alternatrix does work, precisely as advertised, and we did use it, fleeing this plane for what we foolishly imagined to be forever, and we got sent to a wonderful place where the skies were plaid, and the air was rancid, and the people were friendly, and nobody ever tried to put doilies on us. Unfortunately, even paradise is subject to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, and the very act of experiencing such a perfect place causes random heterodyning changes that don't even make themselves apparent for a year or so. After that, paradise is quickly reduced to yet another run-of-the-mill, rotten place just like this one.
6: Nimitz's eyes went wide and sympathetic. It must have been a real shock for you when you saw your first doily. Mud shuddered meaningfully.
7: Too true. In any event... Once we escaped the charred ruins of our ideal universe, we threw what our statisticians have decreed the single biggest snit in the history of intelligent life, excepting only George C. Scott's refusal of the Oscar for Patton. We decided that if we were going to have our expectations toyed with like that, then so was everybody else. It became our fondest dream to have the entire population of this galaxy suffer that kind of deformative angst, except without the possibility to escape otherwise. The only problem was that we could not accomplish this without going into business, and we cannot go into business without the proper production capital, and we cannot get that capital unless you manage to retrieve Deja Shapiro from wherever she secreted herself. We had hoped you would cooperate willingly, but now... Vosov grit his teeth heroically. Now that I know there's
6: no possible way I can profit from this insane scheme, there's no way you can get me to
7: help. Oh yes, there is. And for free, too. You see, I've just cleverly reversed the polarity of the Alternatrix so it can send you to your worst possible universe, the one that for you would be a hell beyond all imagining. I'm going to give you a brief taste of what it's like, just long enough to break your spirit. Then I'll yank you back and threaten to exile you there forever, unless you provide us with what we want. Nimitz looked at his ex-partner.
0: I don't
6: like this place, Ernst. Neither do I, said Vassoff as he reeled from all the potential horrors awaiting him mere seconds away. Lease Mud, you don't have to do this. I'll cooperate. I'll do anything you say. I'll accept your original offer of vast wealth and power. I'll... Too late. ...chirped the
7: alien coffee table as he flicked the switch. Ernst is the one with the bigger attitude problem, so he goes first. The alternatrix pulsed, and Vossoff disappeared...
6: ...only to instantly reappear elsewhere in the room. His Betelheim munitions all right, now I'm righteously pissed rifle... ...inflating his already irate facial expression into the kind of look that actually, literally, can kill. The image of a glaring Vossoff was recreated inside Mud's mind... ...at some ten billion times its real-life size and neither Vossoff or Nimitz would ever know whether it was truly mortal fear or just overwhelming revulsion that burst the Machiavellian alien's heart. Either way, mud tumbled to the deck, no longer a coffee table so much as a collapsible dinner tray. Vossoff stood over him, panting heavily, his congenitally stern expression segueing from astonishment to realization to out-and-out depression. Nimitz leapt up and down inside his stasis field. Ernst! Ernst! That was totally awesome! How did you do that? Vasov looked awfully upset for a guy who just escaped the inescapable Death Trap, defeated the ranting alien villain, and saved the universe. "'I didn't do anything,' he said numbly. "'Apparently, the Alternatrix simply decided that I was already in the worst possible universe for me, not an unreasonable value judgment overall, considering that this is the place where I get arrested, stranded on uninhabited planets.' Transformed into foul-smelling alien moss, battered incensed by marbles, inflated into mountain-sized lumps of quivering animal fat, and being driven insane in mental institutions. But it's still a tremendously depressing thing to find scientifically verified like this. Nimitz's eyes widen. But doesn't this mean we've won? Doesn't it mean that you're going to release me from the stasis field and help me comb alternate universes for Deja? Vosov shook his head, a cruel, unbearably paternal smile just beginning to play at the corners of his lips. You truly must believe me, almost as attelpated as yourself. Me, free you. The paramecium who betrayed me to my ex-wife. rescued Deja, the mean-spirited matron who transformed me into a mountain of quivering goo. No thank you, in either instance. Nimitz pounded on hands against the edges of the stasis field. But, but, you promised... I never promised anything, idiot. You merely fell prey to the notorious Unger principle and assumed. No, I'm happy to say, both you and Deja can seat where you are and rot, but I'm going to use the alternatrix to locate another universe for myself. Someplace, neither the endless parade of torments and humiliations that this particular cosmos has become, nor the ideal paradise that mud assured us would deteriorate within one year. Just someplace a little closer to heaven than hell, where an enterprising evil genius might actually stand a chance of conquering the vast interstellar empire that he deserves. But, 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 Ernst, you can't. Deja! Vossoff blackened the other man's stasis field, instantly trapping him in silence and darkness. It felt good to realize that this long nightmare was over, that he'd never have to listen to that whining voice again, and that he was about to get everything he'd ever deserved. So good that for the first time in more years than he cared to count, he actually threw back his head and indulged in a spirited round of crazed, maniacal laughter. And then he bent over to examine the Alternatrix controls. They were absurdly simple. He estimated six and one-half minutes before he mastered them. Six and one-half minutes that Carl Nimitz experienced screaming soundlessly inside his stasis field, certain that he was trapped there forever, and that he'd never see his beloved Deja again. They were not a very enjoyable six and one-half minutes. Indeed, a sentient with more of a mind to lose would have become irrevocably, irretrievably mad, forever lost in nightmares from his unfettered id. Nimitz's hallucination was considerably more arcane. A little white ball of light forever bouncing back and forth between two rectangular paddles. Nimitz did not know what these creatures were or what they wanted of him, but he did know that their strange customs were well beyond his simple comprehension. When he realized that they would continue this dance for him for as long as he was alive to watch it, he began to shriek. And then, the stasis field abruptly switched off, and Nimitz pitched forward in a headlong flight that was only stopped by the dense molecular cohesion of the nearest bulkhead wall. He bounced off, breathing heavily, and frantically searched the room for signs of the vengeful Ernst Bossoff finding instead the beaming, beautiful, radiantly happy Deja Shapiro at the alternatrix controls. Hello, my little junior space ranger. He stumbled into her arms. Deja, what? She shushed him with a kiss. And what with one thing or another, perhaps best left to the fertile imagination of the reader, he somehow didn't get around to asking her for an explanation for some time. Two days later, she managed a breathless, Well, it's like this but still found herself far too busy to actually continue beyond that point. This went on at nauseating length, fond reunions being what they are. And then they embarked upon a second honeymoon, and immediately after that, a third, and then got involved with the battle to stop the Plebeorg invasion from Sector 5, and then out of a need to rewind, took a side trip to 20th century Earth where they amused themselves flying low over random motorists on isolated rural highways. But eventually, perhaps months or even years later, Nimitz's attention span being the wonky thing that it was, when they were lounging around her palatial villa on Cascameroon 4, he finally got around to asking her again, and Deja, resigned to the inevitable, finally explained. It's quite simple. I knew that galactic civilization was doomed if I ever permitted myself to fall into their hands, so I transported myself to some place not quite paradise, but which I'd always wanted to visit for a week or two. Which was where? She lowered her eyes demurely. Chocolate Heaven. Excuse me? A faraway, dreamy tone entered her voice. Chocolate heaven, she repeated, with an ardor that made her pupils dilate. Imagine, an entire universe where even the darkest, richest, sweetest, and most decadent chocolate ever confected possesses the same number of calories as distilled water. I didn't have to deny myself there at all. I was able to stuff my mouth with eclairs and crunch bars and seven-layer Black Forest cake and toffee and cocoa, ton after ton of it. And it was all guilt-free, and I came back weighing less than I did before I left. Of course, I didn't want to stay there forever, since even I can get sick of chocolate for a while. But that just means that I'll be able to remain dedicated to my diet now. Nimitz licked his lips. I see. Anyway... I figured that once you were unable to find me, they'd recruit Ernst, and I knew that it was inevitable that he wouldn't cooperate. So before leaving, I programmed the machine with two hastily written subroutines. The first would bounce him back to this universe, in a more tactically advantageous position the instant they tried to send him somewhere he wouldn't like. The second summoned me back automatically the instant he went through willingly, to some place he thought he wanted to be. As always, Nimitz was boggled. And Ernst? Where is he now? According to what the readout said before I dismantled the alternatrix forever, he instructed the machine to send him someplace where he'd fit in perfectly. I'm tempted to rebuild it and summon him back so I can give him a piece of my mind for betraying you the way he did. But no. Let's hope he finally found what he's been looking for. After saving the galaxy, he deserves it. That he did. And yes, Ernst Vasov did find what he asked for. It's a universe where such factors as gravity, motion, and entropy simply don't exist, because there's never been any reason for them to exist. A universe where time itself froze solid at the moment of its creation. A universe that happens to be entirely matter, but for a small pocket of empty space that, by pure random chance, just happens to be precisely the size and shape of a single man. A single, screaming, not very happy, certainly not very comfortable man, who no doubt would die immediately were it not for the local physical laws that keep him aware and conscious, but wholly, completely motionless. This is the universe where Ernst Vossoff has been dropped, and, as it happens, he does, indeed, literally, fit in. Like a glove. That was just a couple of highly experimental weapons tucked away behind the toilet paper. Chapter 5 of Vossoff and Nimitz Just a Couple of Idiots Reupholstering Space and Time by Adam Troy Castro Published by Wildside Press, Berkeley Heights, New Jersey Copyright 2001 by Adam Troy Castro Read by Morgan Saleta
3: Adam, thank you so much for that and Morgan, fantastic narration, thank you Next up, we have Rod Barnett with his film talk for this month.
0: Rod. Hello, everybody. In 1987, when Predator came out, it was considered a bit of a, an amalgam, a kind of mashup of two different types of movies that were popular at the time, kind of being smooshed together. One was obvious. Starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, this was a typical Arnold film with him as a very muscular, gun toting hero. And the other part was also pretty familiar, a science fiction remake of the most dangerous game with an alien as the hunter and humans as his unwitting prey. Pretty high concept for Hollywood in 1987, and 23 years later, also pretty high concept for Hollywood. That original film was a huge success, so of course a few years later there was a sequel called Predator 2. It was not so much a success, and as a matter of fact, is kind of considered the lame duck in the series now that we have a third film out, but I've always felt an affection for the second film, although I have to admit it's one I'm going to have to go back and re-watch, considering it's been years since I've seen it, and all I really remember are certain flashes of neat little things here and there, and Danny Glover running around with a gun while he bled. Anyway, the Predator series was kept alive through the 90s and well up until the mid-2000s by a series of comic book stories that pitted the Predators against everyone from Superman and Batman, all the way up to, well, the obvious creatures, the aliens from the Alien movies. This is where we get into trouble, because the third Predator film was also the fifth Alien film, and whoa, man, did they blow it. There were two Alien vs. Predator films released earlier this decade, and oh my goodness, I don't know what you think about them, folks, but I consider them to be two of the worst pieces of crap I've ever sat through in a theater in my life. It shows just how much of an eternal movie optimist I am that I actually went to a movie theater to see the second one after how bad the first one was. Now we have, many years later, a film called Predators. Obviously riffing on the idea that James Cameron came up with when he made his sequel to Alien back in 86. Which is, hey, think of that S on the end as a dollar sign. Yes, this film, Predators, ups the ante. Not a single Predator, but a whole slew of them. Indeed, as we'll find out, a planet of them. And not just the classic Predator, but something a little nastier as well. Now, I'm going to ignore the obvious question, which would be, did the world really need another Predator film? And say flat out that I don't care if the world needed it or not. I'm just glad this film came along. It by itself erases the memory of those Alien vs. Predator films. And for that, it deserves my salute. But the good news is, that's not the only good thing about it. Apparently, screenwriter and director Robert Rodriguez wrote this script, or at least the genesis of this script, back in 1994, hoping to put this in front of the 20th Century Fox executives and have this be Predator 3. That didn't work out for whatever reason, I'm assuming because Predator 2 didn't perform as well as they had hoped it would, but now, years later, we finally get a version of it. He handed the directing off to Hungarian director Nimrod Antel, who has made some very interesting films in the past. His Hungarian film Control, spelled with a K, is an excellent thriller that takes place almost exclusively on the subway system of Prague. Well worth seeing. Allow me to highly recommend it. And came over to America a few years ago and has made a couple of thrillers since then that have been really surprisingly good. This is Nimrod Antel's first chance to do a science fiction, big-budget film. And... The good news is, he nails it to the wall. This is, although one could argue scaled down from the level of budgetary excess of, say, the 87 original and its immediate sequel, still a really fun, high-concept, sci-fi action movie. It's got lots to recommend it. First of all, a neat cast. They did not even attempt to go into this with the idea of casting big, huge, muscular guys, as in the first film. They went, I dare say it, a little more realistic, because the people in this, although there are a couple of muscular guys, are generally just exactly the kind of people I would expect to be mercenaries. Well, at least the people who play mercenaries. In other words, little guys but thin, tight, and wiry. Dangerous. Unexpectedly dangerous. The film begins with a blast right in your face. Adrian Brody's wiry little mercenary wakes up in midair, nay, in free fall, straight out of some plane or something plummeting toward the earth, trying desperately as quickly as he can to make the parachute he thinks he's strapped in to function, all you can think immediately is, wow, did we come in in the middle here? But no, that's just where the film starts. Soon after the chute opens of its own accord, and drops him into a jungle, he quickly realizes that there are a number of people who've been dropped along with him, and, faster than you can say, who the heck are you, they're firing at each other before figuring out that they need to cooperate and figure out just where they are. Of course, as anybody who's seen the trailer or has heard any word about this film at all knows, this is a group of people who have been plucked from the Earth and dropped onto an alien planet, which seems to be a game reserve for the Predators. Yes, the most dangerous game continues, this time off-world. Among the nasty group is a sharply dressed Yakuza, a Mexican drug enforcer, kind of a cocaine cartel hatchet man, played by Danny Trejo. There's a Russian soldier of fortune, a man fresh out of prison who was apparently supposed to be executed the next few days. And along the way, they run into one surprise guest star who has a very interesting role, but uh, I'll leave that to surprise people as they watch the film. This is a tight little fun film. It's not going to be anybody's favorite movie of the year, but it is a fun little Predator film. As a matter of fact, I would have to say it's the second best Predator film that's ever been made. And before you say that's damning it with faint praise, hey, I liked that first movie a good bit. It's a lot of fun. And so is this one. And the great thing about this one is I wouldn't mind seeing a sequel to it, especially with the survivors from this cast. They do a fine job. And hey, Get that Nimrod guy back in the director's seat. He knows how to make these things well, and he knows how to make an action sequence that you can follow and understand without developing a headache. What we have here is a nice return to form for a series that I thought was going to just be relegated to the scrap heap forever. It's fun. It's violent. It earns its R rating. It's got a few nasty elements, and it's a breath of fresh air in a summer that brought us really, really terrible film after terrible film, and disappointment after disappointment. This was a nice surprise. So, if you're curious about Predators, I think you'll like it. Alright folks, I'll see you again soon. Go out, see a few movies, and let us know what you think. Take it easy.
3: Rod. I thank you so much. Next up is part two of The Barons, the F. Paul Wilson serial which Starship so far is running. It is narrated by Amy H. Sturgis.
8: In our first installment of The Barons by F. Paul Wilson, we met Kathleen McKelston, whose life is rudely interrupted by her former flame, Jonathan Creighton, who contacts her for help. An anthropologist Jonathan claims he's writing a book on the folklore surrounding the Jersey Devil, and he needs Kathleen, a native piney, to serve as his guide in the remote Pine Barrens as he investigates the local stories. She reluctantly agrees and takes him back to her native woods, where they hear tales of possible connections between the mysterious Pine Lights and the Jersey Devil, and learn of a backwoods moonshiner named Gus Sui who might know more. And now... THE SECOND INSTALLMENT OF THE BARONS BY F. PAUL WILSON 4. THE Hessian. I bought a gallon-sized brown jug at the Chatsworth General Store. Creighton bought two. I want this suey fellow to be real glad to see me. I drove us down 563, then off to Apple Pie Hill, We got south of it and began following Jasper's directions, Creighton read while I drove. What the hell's a cripple? He said. That's a spong with no cedars. Ah, that clears up everything. A spong is a low wet spot. If it's got cedars growing around it, it's a cripple. What could be clearer? I'm not sure, but I know I'll think of something. By the way, why's this suey fellow called a hessian? Mulliner doesn't really think he's... Of course not. is an old German name around the Pine Barrens comes from the Hessians who deserted the British army and fled into the woods after the Battle of Trenton. The Revolution? Sure. This sand road we're riding on now was here 300-odd years ago as a wagon trail. It probably hasn't changed any since. Might even have been used by the smugglers who used to unload freight in the marshes and move it overland through the pines to avoid port taxes in New York and Philly. "'A lot of them settled in here. "'So did a good number of Tories and Loyalists "'who were chased from their land after the Revolution. "'Some of them probably arrived dressed in tar and feathers and little else. "'The Lenape Indians settled in here, too. "'So did Quakers who were kicked out of their churches "'for taking up arms during the Revolution.' Creighton laughed. "'Sounds like Australia. "'Didn't anyone besides outcasts settle here?' "'Sure. "'Bog iron was a major industry.' This was the center of the colonial iron production. Most of the cannonballs fired against the British in the Revolution and the War of 1812 were forged right here in the Pine Barrens. Where'd everybody go? A place called Pittsburgh. There was more iron there, and it was cheaper to produce. The furnaces here tried to shift over to glass production, but they were running out of wood to keep them going. Each furnace consumed something like a thousand acres of pine a year. With the charcoal industry, the lumber industry, even the cedar shake industry, all adding to the daily toll on the tree population, the barons couldn't keep up with the demand. The whole economy collapsed after the Civil War, which probably saved the area from becoming a desert. I noticed the underbrush between the ruts getting higher, slapping against the front bumper as we passed, a sure sign that not many people came this way. Then I spotted the red cedar. Jasper had been right. It didn't look like it belonged here. We turned right and drove until we came to a cul-de-sac at the base of a hill. Three resting cars hugged the bushes along the perimeter. This must be the place, I said. This is not a place. This is nowhere. We grabbed our jugs and walked up the path. About a third of the way up the slope, we broke into a clearing with a slat-roofed shack in the far left corner. It looked maybe twenty feet on a side and was covered with tar paper that was peeling away in spots, exposing the plywood beneath. Somewhere behind the shack, a dog had begun to bark. Creighton said, ''Finally!'' and started forward. I laid a hand on his arm. ''Call out first, I told him, ''otherwise we may be ducking buckshot.'' He thought I was joking at first, then saw that I meant it. ''You're serious?'' We're dressed like city folk. We could be revenuers. He'll shoot first and ask questions later. Hello in the house, Creighton cried. Jasper Mulliner sent us. Can we come up? A wizened figure appeared on the front step, a twelve-gauge cradled in his arms. How'd he send you? By way of the red cedar, Mr. Sui, I replied. Come on up, then. Where Jasper had been neat, Gus Sui was slovenly. His white hair looked like a deranged bird had tried to nest in it. For a shirt, he wore the stained top from a set of long johns and had canvas pants secured around his waist with coarse rope. His lower face was obscured by a huge white beard stained around the mouth, an Appalachian Santa Claus going to seed in the off-season. We followed him into the single room of his home. The floor was covered with a mismatched assortment of throw rugs and carpet remnants. A bed set in the far left corner. A kerosene stove was immediately to our right. Set about the room were a number of Aladdin lamps with the tall flues. Dominating the scene was a heavy-legged kitchen table with an enamel top. We introduced ourselves, and Gus said he'd met my father years ago. So, what brings you two kids out here to see Gus Sui? I had to smile, not just at the way he managed to ignore the jugs we were carrying, but it being referred to as a kid. A long time since anyone had called me that. I wouldn't let anyone call me a girl these days, but somehow I didn't mind, kid. Today we tasted some of the best applejack in the world, Creighton said with convincing sincerity, and Jasper told us you were the source. He slammed his two jugs on the table. Fill them up. I placed my own jug next to Creighton's. I gotta warn you. Gus said. It's five dollars a quart. Five dollars, Creighton said. Yeah, Gus added quickly, but seeing as you're buying so much at once, don't get me wrong, Mr. Suey, I wasn't saying the price is too high. I was just shocked that you'd be selling such high-grade sipping whiskey for such a low price. You were? The old man beamed with delight. It is awful good, isn't it? That it is, sir, that it is. That it surely is. I almost burst out laughing. I don't know how Creighton managed to keep a straight face. Gus held up a finger. You kids stay right here. I'll dip into my stock and be back in a jiffy. We both broke down into helpless laughter as soon as he was gone. You're laying it on awful thick, I said when I caught my breath. I know, but he's lapping up every bit. Gus returned in a few minutes with two-gallon jugs of his own. Hadn't we ought to test this first before you begin filling our jugs? Creighton said. Not a bad idea. No, sir, not a bad idea. Not a bad idea at all. Creighton produced some paper cups from one of the pockets in his safari jacket and placed them on the table. Gus poured. We all sipped. This is even smoother than what Jasper served us. How do you do it, Mr. Sui? That's a secret, he said with a wink as he brought out a funnel and began decanting from his jugs into ours. I brought up John's book, and Gus launched into a slightly different version of the Jersey Devil story, saying it was born in Leeds, which is at the opposite end of the Pine Barrens from Estelleville. Otherwise, the tales were almost identical. Jasper says he saw the devil once, Creighton said as Gus topped off the last of our jugs he says he did, then he did. That'll be $60. Creighton gave him three twenties. And now I'd like to buy you a drink, Mr. Suey. Call me Gus, and I don't mind if I do. Creighton was overly generous, I thought, but the way he filled the three paper cups, I didn't want any more. but I felt I had to keep up appearances. I sipped while the men quaffed. Jasper told us about a time he saw the Jersey Devil. He mentioned seeing pine lights at the same time. I sensed, rather than saw, Gus stiffen. Is that so? Yeah. He said you see pine lights around here all the time. Is that true? You interested in pine lights or the Jersey Devil, boy? Both. I'm interested in all the folktales of the pines. Well, don't get too interested in the pine lights. Why not? Just don't. I watched Creighton tip his jug and refill Gus's cup. A toast, Creighton said, lifting his cup, to the Pine Barrens. I'll drink that, Gus said and drained his cup. Creighton followed suit, causing his eyes to fill with tears. I sipped while he poured another round. To the Jersey Devil, Creighton cried, hoisting his cup again. And again, they both tossed off their drinks, and then another round. To the Pine Lights. "'Gus wouldn't drink to that one. "'I was glad. "'I didn't think either of them would have remained standing if he had. "'Have you seen any pine lights lately, Gus?' Creighton said. "'You don't give up, do you, boy?' "'The old man said. "'It's an affliction.' "'So it is. "'All right, sure. "'I see them all the time. "'Saw some last night.' "'Really? "'Where?' "'None of your business.' "'Why not?' "'Because you'll probably try to do something stupid, like catch one, "'and then I'll be responsible for what happens to you and this young lady here. "'Not on my conscience, no thank you.' "'I wouldn't dream of trying to catch one of those things,' Creighton said. "'Well, if you did, you wouldn't be the first. "'Peggy Clevenger was the first. "'Gus lifted his head and looked at me. "'You heard of Peggy Clevenger, ain't you, Miss McElston? "'I nodded. "'Sure, the Witch of the Pines.' In the old days, people used to put salt over their doors to keep her away. Creighton began scribbling. No kidding. This is great. What about her and the pine lights? Peggy was a Hessian like me, lived over in Pasadena. Not the California Pasadena, the Pines Pasadena. A few mile east of Mount Misery. The town's gone now like it never been. But she lived thereabouts by herself in a small cabin, and people said she had all sorts of strange powers, like she could change her shape and become a rabbit or a snake. I don't know about that stuff, but I heard from someone who should know that she was powerful interested in the pine lights. She told this fellow one day that she had caught one of the pine lights, put a spell on it, and brought it down. Creighton had stopped writing. He was staring at Gus. How could she? Don't know. Gus said, draining his cup and shaking his head. But that very night, her cabin burned to the ground. They found her blackened and burned body among the ashes the next morning. So I tell you, kids, it ain't a good idea to get too interested in the pine lights. I don't want to capture one, Creighton said. I don't even want to see one. I just want to know where other people have seen them. How can that be dangerous? Gus thought about that. And while he was thinking, Creighton poured him another cupful. Don't s'pose it would do any harm to show you where there was, he said after a long, slow sip. Then it settled. Let's go. We gathered up the jugs and headed out into the late afternoon sunshine. The fresh air was like a tonic. It perked me up, but didn't dissipate the effects of all the jack I'd consumed. When we reached the Wrangler, Creighton pulled out his sextant and compass. Before we go, there's something I've got to do. Gus and I watched in silence as he took his sightings and scribbled in his notebook. Then he spread his map out on the hood again. What's up? I said. I'm putting Razorback Hill on the map, he said. He jotted his readings on the map and drew a circle. Before he folded everything up, I glanced over his shoulder and noticed that the line he had drawn from Apple Pie Hill ran right by the circle that was Razorback Hill. You through dawdling? Gus said. Sure am. You want to ride in front? No thanks, Gus said, heading for the rusty DeSoto. I'll drive myself and you kids follow. I said, won't it be easier if we all go together? Hell no. You kids have been drinking. When we stopped laughing, we pulled ourselves into the Wrangler and followed the old Hessian back up his private sand road. 5. The Firing Place. I used to make charcoal here when I was young, Gus said. We were standing in a small clearing surrounded by young pines. Before us was a shallow, sandy depression, choked with weeds. This used to be my firing place. It was deeper then. I made some fine charcoal here before the big companies started selling their bags of briquettes. He fairly spat the word. "'Ain't no way any one of those smelly little things was ever part of a tree, I'll tell you that. Is this where you saw the lights, Gus?' Creighton said. "'Were they moving?' Gus said, "'You got a one-track mind, don't you, boy?' He glanced around. "'Yeah, this is where I saw them. Saw 'em Saw here last night, and I saw them here fifty nights ago, and I seen them near about every summer in between.'" I remember how, while I was letting my charcoal burn, I'd use the time to hunt up box turtles. And sell them as snail hunters? I said. I'd heard of box turtle hunting, another Lands mini-industry, but I'd never met anyone who'd actually done it. Sure, folks in Philadelphia'd buy all I could find. They'd like to let them loose in their cellars to keep the snails and slugs under control. The lights, Gus, Creighton said. Which way were they going? They was going the same way they always went when I seen them here. That way. He was pointing southeast. Are you sure? Sure as shit, boy. Gus's tongue was getting testy, but he quickly turned to me. Excuse me, miss. Then back to Creighton. I was standing back there, right where my car is, when about half-dozen of them swooped in low, right overhead not a hunting swoop, but a floaty sort of swoop, and traveled away over that pitch pine there with the split top. Good, said Creighton, eyeing the sky. A thick sheet of cloud was pulling up from the west, encroaching on the sinking sun. Out came the sextant and compass. Creighton took his readings, wrote his numbers, then took a bearing on the tree Gus had pointed out. A slow, satisfied smile crept over his face as he drew the latest line on his map. He folded it up before I had a chance to see where that line went. I didn't have to see. His next question told me. "'Say, Gus,' he said offhandedly. "'What's on the far side of Razorback Hill?' Gus turned on Creighton like an angry bear. "'Nothing. There's nothing there, so don't you even think about going over there!' Creighton's smile was amused. I was only asking no harm in a little question, is there? There is. There is. Yes, there surely is. Especially when those questions is the wrong ones. And you've been asking a whole lot of wrong questions, boy. Questions that's going to get you in a whole mess of bad trouble if you don't get smart and learn that certain things is best left alone. You hear me? He sounded like a character from one of those old Frankenstein movies. I hear you. Creighton said, and I appreciate your concern, but can you tell me the best way to get to the other side of that hill? Gus threw up his hands with an angry growl. That's it. I'm having no more to do with the two of you. I've already told you, too much as it is. He turned to me, his eyes blazing. And you, Miss McKelston, you get yourself away from this boy. He's headed straight to hell. With that, he turned and headed for his car. He jumped in, slammed the door, and roared away with a spray of sand. "'I don't think he likes me,' Creighton said. "'He seemed genuinely frightened,' I told him. Creighton shrugged and began packing away his sextant. "'Maybe he really believes in the Jersey Devil,' he said. "'Maybe he thinks it lives on the other side of Razorback Hill.' "'I don't know about that. "'I got the impression he thinks the Jersey Devil is something to tell tall tales about.' while sitting around the stove and sipping Jack. But those pine lights, he's scared of them. Just swamp gas, I'm sure, Creighton said. Suddenly, I was furious. Maybe it was all the Jack I'd consumed, or maybe it was his attitude. But I think at that particular moment, it was mostly his line of bull. Cut it, John, I said. If you really believe they're swamp gas, why are you tracking them on your map? You've got me to guide you out here, so let's have it straight. What's going on? I don't know what's going on, Mac. If I did, I wouldn't be here. Isn't that obvious? These pine lights mean something. Whether or not they're connected to the Jersey Devil, I don't know. Maybe they have an hallucinatory effect on people. After they pass overhead, people think they see things. I'm trying to establish a pattern. And after you've established this pattern, what do you think you'll find? Maybe truth, he said. Reality. Who knows? Maybe the meaning or meaninglessness of life. He looked at me with eyes so intense, so full of longing, that my anger evaporated. John? His expression abruptly shifted back to neutral, and he laughed. Don't worry, Mac. It's only me, Crazy Creighton, putting you on again. Let's have another snort of Gus Sui's best and head for civilization, okay? I've had enough for the day. The week. You don't mind if I partake, do you? Help yourself. I didn't know how he could hold so much. While Creighton uncorked his jug, I strolled about the firing place to clear my fuzzy head. The sky was fully overcast now, and the temperature was dropping to a more comfortable level. He had everything packed away by the time I completed the circle. "'Want me to drive?' he said, tossing his paper cup onto the sand. Normally, I would have picked it up. There was something sacrilegious about leaving a Dixie cup among the pines. But I was afraid to bend over that far, afraid I'd keep on going headfirst into the sand and become litter myself.' I'm okay. You'll get us lost. We had traveled no more than a hundred feet or so when I realized that I didn't know this road. But I kept driving. I hadn't been paying close attention while following Gus here, but I was pretty sure it wouldn't be long before I'd come to a fork or a cripple or a bog that I recognized and then would be home free. It didn't quite work out that way. I drove for maybe five miles or so, winding this way and that with the roads, making my best guess when we came to a fork, and we came to plenty of those, and generally trying to keep us heading in the same general direction. I thought I was doing a pretty good job, until we drove through an area of young pines that looked familiar. I stopped the wrangler. John, I said, isn't this damn right it is? he said, pointing to the sand beside the road. We're back at Gus's firing place. There's my Dixie Cup. I turned the jeep around and headed back the way I came. What are you doing? Creighton said. Making sure I don't make the same mistake twice, I told him. I didn't know how I could have driven in a circle. I usually had an excellent sense of direction. I blamed it on too much Jersey lightning and on the thickly overcast sky. Without the sun as a marker, I'd been unable to keep us on course. But that would change, here and now. I'd get us out of here this time around. Wrong. After a good 45 minutes of driving, I was so embarrassed when I recognized the firing place again that I actually accelerated as we passed through, hoping Creighton wouldn't recognize the spot in the thickening dust. But I wasn't quick enough. Hold it, he cried. Hold it just a damn minute. There's my cup again. We're right back where we started. John, I said, I don't understand it. Something's wrong. You're stewed. That's what's wrong. I'm not. I truly believed I wasn't. I'd been feeling the effects of the jack before. True. But my head was clear now. I was sure I'd been heading due east, or at least pretty close to it. How I'd come full circle again was beyond me. Creighton jumped out of his seat and came around the front of the wrangler. Over you go, Mac. It's my turn. I started to protest, then thought better of it. I'd blown it twice already. Maybe my sense of direction had fallen prey to the apple palsy, as it was known. I lifted myself over the stick shift and dropped into the passenger seat. Be my guest. Creighton drove like a maniac, seemingly choosing forks at random. Do you know where you're going? I said. "'Yeah, Mac,' he said. "'I'm going whichever way you didn't, I think.' "'As darkness closed in and he turned on the headlights, "'I noticed that the trees were thinning out "'and the underbrush was closing in, "'rising to eight feet or better on either side of us. Creighton pulled off to the side at a widening of the road. "'You should stay on the road,' I told him. "'I'm lost,' he said. "'We've got to think.' "'Fine.' But it's not as if somebody's going to be coming along and want to get by. He laughed. That's a fact. He got out and looked up at the sky. Damn, if it weren't for the clouds, we could figure out where we are, or at least know where north is. I looked around. We were surrounded by bushes. It was the Pine Barren's equivalent of an English hedge maze. There wasn't a tree in sight. A tree can be almost as good as a compass. Its moss faces north, and its longest branches face south. Bushes are worse than useless for that, and the high ones only add to your confusion. And we were confused. I thought pineys never get lost, Creighton said. Everybody gets lost sooner or later out here. Well, what do pineys do when they get lost? They don't exhaust themselves or waste their gas by running around in circles. They hunker down and wait for morning. To hell with that! Creighton said. He threw the Wrangler into first and gunned it toward the road, but the vehicle didn't reach the road. It lurched forward and rocked back. He tried again, and I heard the wheel spinning. Sugar, I said. Creighton looked at me and grinned. Stronger language is allowed and even encouraged in this sort of situation. I was referring to the sand. Don't worry, I've got four-wheel drive. "'Right, and all four wheels are spinning. "'We're in a patch of what's known as sugar sand.' "'He got out and pushed and rocked "'while I worked the gears and throttle, "'but I knew it was no use. "'We weren't going to get out of this superfine sand "'until we found some wood "'and piled it under the tires to give them some traction. "'And we weren't going to be able to hunt up that kind of wood "'until morning. "'I told Creighton that we'd only waste what gas we had left, and that our best bet was to call it a night and pull out the sleeping bags. He seemed reluctant at first, worrying about deer ticks and catching Lyme disease, but he finally agreed. He had no choice. Six. The Pine Lights. "'I owe you one, John,' I said. "'How was I to know we'd get lost?' he said defensively. "'I don't like this any more than you.' "'No, you don't understand.' I meant that in a good sense. I'm glad you talked me into coming with you. I'd found us a small clearing not too far from the jeep. It surrounded the gnarled trunk of an old lone pine that towered above the dominant brush. We'd eaten the last of the sandwiches, and now we sat on our respective bedrolls, facing each other across the Coleman lamp sitting between us on the sand. Creighton was back to sipping his applejack. I would have killed, or at least maimed, for a cup of coffee. I watched his face in the lamplight. His expression was puzzled. You must still be feeling the effects of that Jersey lightning you had this afternoon, he said. No, I'm perfectly sober. I've been sitting here realizing that I'm glad to be back. I've had a feeling for years that something's been missing from my life. Never had an inkling as to what it was until now. But this is it. I'm... My throat constricted around the word. I'm home. It wasn't the jack talking. It was my heart. I'd learned something today. I'd learned that I loved the Pine Barrens, and I loved its people. So rich in history, so steeped in its own lore, somehow surviving untainted in the heart of the 20th century urban madness, I turned my back on it. Why? Too proud? Too good for it now? Maybe I'd thought I'd pulled myself up by my bootstraps and gone on to bigger and better things. I could see that I hadn't. I'd taken the girl out of the Pine Lands, but I hadn't taken the Pine Lands out of the girl. I promised myself to come back here again, often. I was going to look up my many relatives, renew old ties. I wasn't ready to move back here, and perhaps I never would, but I'd never turn my back on the Pinelands again. Creighton raised his cup to me. "'I envy anyone who's found the missing piece. "'I'm still looking for mine.' "'You'll find it,' I said, crawling into my bedroll. "'You've just got to keep your eyes open. "'Sometimes it's right under your nose.' "'Go to sleep, Mac. "'You're starting to sound like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz.' "'I smiled at that. "'For a moment, there he was, "'very much like the Jonathan Creighton I'd fallen in love with. "'As I closed my eyes,' I saw him pull out a pair of binoculars and begin scanning the cloud-choked sky. I knew what he was looking for, and I was fairly confident he'd never find them. It must have been a while later when I awoke, because the sky had cleared and the stars were coming out, when Creighton's shouts yanked me to a sitting position. ''They're coming! Look at them, Mac! By God, they're coming!'' Creighton was standing on the far side of the lamp, pointing off to my left. I followed the line of his arm and saw nothing. "'What are you talking about?' "'Stand up, Damn it! they're coming. "'There must be a dozen of them.' "'I struggled to my feet and froze. "'The starlit underbrush stretched away in a gentle rise "'for maybe a mile or two in the direction he was pointing, "'broken only occasionally by the angular shadows "'of the few scattered trees, "'and coming our way over that broad expanse, "'skimming along at treetop level.' was an oblong cluster of faintly glowing lights. Lights. That's what they were. Not glowing spheres, not UFOs or any of that nonsense. They had no discernible substance. They were just light. Globules of light. I felt my hackles rise at the sight of them. Perhaps because I'd never seen light behave that way before. It didn't seem right or natural for light to concentrate itself in a ball. Or perhaps it was the way they moved, gliding through the night with such purpose, cutting through the dark, weaving from tree to tree, floating by the topmost branches and then forging a path toward the next, almost as if the trees were signposts. Or perhaps it was the silence, the awful silence. The pine barrens are quiet as far as civilized sounds are concerned. But there's always the noise of the living things. The hoots and cries and rustlings of the animals. The incessant insect circeration. That was all gone now. There wasn't even a breeze to rustle the bushes. Silence. More than a mere absence of noise. A holding of breath. Do you see them, Mac? Tell me I'm not hallucinating. Do you see them? I see them, John. My voice sounded funny. I realized my mouth was dry, and not just from sleep. Creighton turned around, and in a quick circle his arms spread. I don't have a camera. I need a picture of this. You didn't bring a camera? I said. My God, you brought everything else. I know, but I never dreamed. Suddenly he was running for the tree at the center of our clearing. John, you're not really— They're coming this way. If I can get close to them. I was suddenly afraid for him. Something about those lights was warning me away. Why wasn't it warning Creighton? Or was he simply not listening? I followed him at a reluctant lope. Don't be an idiot, John. You don't know what they are. Exactly. It's about time somebody found out. He started climbing. It was a big old pitch pine with no branches to speak of for the first dozen feet or so of the trunk but its bark was knobby and rough enough for Creighton's rubber-soled boots to find purchase. He slipped off twice, but he was determined. Finally, he made it to the lowest branch, and from there on, it looked easy. I can't explain the crawling sensation in my gut as I watched Jonathan Creighton climbing toward a rendezvous with the approaching pine lights. He was three-quarters of the way to the top when the trunk began to shake and sway with his weight. Then a branch broke under his foot, and he almost fell. When I saw that he'd regained safe footing, I sighed with relief. The branches above him were too frail to hold him. He couldn't go any higher. He'd be safe from the lights. And the lights were here, a good dozen of them, from baseball to basketball size, gliding along our clearing in an irregular cylindrical cluster, perhaps ten feet across and twenty feet long, heading straight for Creighton's tree. And the closer they got, the faster my insides crawled. They may have been made up of light, but it was not a clean light, not the golden, healthy light of day. This was a wan, sickly, anemic glow, tainted with the vaguest hint of green. But thankfully, it was a glow out of Creighton's reach as the lights brushed the tree's topmost needles. I watched their glow, limb Creighton's upturned face as his body strained upward, and I wondered at his recklessness, at this obsession with finding reality. Was he flailing and floundering about in his search, or was he actually on the trail of something, and were the pine lights part of it? As the first light passed directly above him, not five feet beyond his outstretched hand, I heard him cry out They're humming, Mac, high pitched. Can you hear it? It's almost musical. And the air up here tingles, almost as if it's charged. This is fantastic. I didn't hear any music, or feel any tingling. All I could hear was my heart, thudding in my chest. All I could feel was the cold sweat that had broken out all over my body. Creighton spoke again. He was practically shouting now, but in a language that was not English, and not like any other language I'd ever heard. He made clicks and wheezes, and the few noises that sounded like words did not seem to fit comfortably on the human tongue. John, what are you doing up there? I cried. He ignored me and kept up the alien gibberish, but the lights, in turn, ignored him and sailed by above him as if he didn't exist. The cluster was almost past now, yet still I couldn't shake the dread, the dark feeling that something awful was going to happen. And then it did. The last light in the cluster was basketball-sized. It seemed as if it was going to trail away above Creighton just like the others, but as it approached the tree, it slowed and began to drop toward Creighton's perch. I was panicked now. John, look out! It's coming right for you! I see it! As the other lights flowed off toward the next treetop, this last one hung back and circled Creighton's tree at a height level with his waist. Get down from there, I called. Are you kidding? This is more than I've ever hoped for. The light suddenly stopped moving and hovered a foot or so in front of Creighton's chest. It's cold, he said in a more subdued tone. Cold light. He reached his hand toward it, and I wanted to shout for him not to, but my throat was locked. The tip of his index finger touched the outer edge of the glow. Really cold. I saw his finger sink into the light, to perhaps the depth of the fingernail, and then, suddenly, the light moved. It more than moved, it leapt onto Creighton's hand, engulfing it. That's when Creighton began to scream. His words were barely intelligible, but I picked out the words cold and burning Again and again, I ran to the base of the tree, expecting him to lose his balance, hoping I could do something to break his fall. I saw the ball of light stretch out and slide up the length of his arm, engulfing it. Then it disappeared. For an instant I thought it might be over, but when Crichton clutched his chest and cried out in greater agony, I realized to my horror that the light wasn't gone, it was inside him. And then I saw the back of his shirt begin to glow, I watched the light ooze out of him and reform itself into a globe. Then it rose and glided off to follow the other lights into the night, leaving Creighton alone in the tree, sobbing and retching. I called up to him. John, are you all right? Do you need help? When he didn't answer, I grabbed hold of the tree trunk, but before I could attempt to climb, he stopped me. Stay there, Mac. His voice was weak, shaky. I'm coming down. It took him twice as long to climb down as it had to go up. His movements were slow, unsteady, and three times he had to stop to rest. Finally, he reached the lowest branch, hung from it by one hand, and made the final drop. I grabbed him immediately to keep him from collapsing into a heap and helped him back toward the lamp and the bedrolls. My God, John, your arm! arm! In the light from the lamp, his flesh seemed to be smoking. The skin on his left hand and forearm was red, almost scalded looking. Tiny blisters were already starting to form. It looks worse than it feels. We've got to get you to a doctor. He dropped to his knees on his bedroll and hugged his injured arm against his chest with his good one. I'm all right. It only hurts a little now. It's going to get infected. Come on, I'll see if I can get us to civilization. Forget it, he said, and I sensed some of the strength returning to his voice. Even if we get the jeep free, we're still lost. We couldn't find our way out of here when it was daylight. What makes you think we'll do any better in the dark? He was right, but I felt I had to do something. Where's your first aid kit? I don't have one. I blew up then. Jesus Christ, John, you're crazy, you know that? You could have fallen out of that tree and been killed. And if you don't wind up with gangrene in that arm, it'll be a miracle. What on God's earth made you do something so stupid? He grinned. I knew it. You still love me. I was not amused. This is serious, John. You risk your life up there. For what? I have to know, Mac. No? What do you have to know? Will you stop giving me this bullshit? I can't. I can't stop, because it's true. I have to know what's real and what's not. Spare me. I mean it. You're sure you know what's real, and so you're content and complacent with that. You can't imagine what it's like not to know, to sense there's a veil across everything, a barrier that keeps you from seeing what's really there. You don't know what it's like to spend your life searching for the edge of that veil so you can lift it and peek, just peek, at what's behind it. I know it's out there, and I can't reach it. You don't know what that's like, Mac. It makes you crazy. Well, that's one thing we can agree on. He laughed. It sounded strained, and reached for his jug of Applejack with his good hand. Haven't you had enough of that tonight? I hated myself for sounding like an old biddy but what I had just seen had shaken me to the core. I was still trembling. No, Mac, the problem is I haven't had enough, not nearly enough. Feeling helpless and angry, I sat down on my own bedroll and watched him take a long pull from the jug. What happened up there, John? I don't know, but I don't ever want it to happen again. And what were you saying? It almost sounded as if you were calling to them he looked up sharply and stared at me. Did you hear what I said? Not exactly. It didn't even sound like speech. That's because it wasn't, he said, and I was sure I detected relief in his voice. I was trying to attract their attention. Well, you sure did that. Across the top of the Coleman lamp, I thought I saw him smile. Yeah, I did, didn't I? In the night around us, I noticed that the insects were becoming vocal again. End of part two
3: And that is Starship Sova's oral Delights are one hundred and forty nine. Next week one hundred and fifty. Ho oh, ho not bad. So I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible
4: ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment?
7: Tune in
0: next week for the next exciting installment of Solution Silver. A valuation procedure initiated. Shovel set for launch. will be in
1: three,